Get ready for Season 3 of the Tron Grand Hackathon 2022 with a total of $1.2 million in prizes across Web3, DeFi, GameFi, NFTs, and the newly added Academy and Ecosystem tracks. The wait is over. Tron Grand Hackathon presented by TronDAO. To learn more, visit trondow.org. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block. And today we have a very exciting guest. Joining us on the other side of the mic is Tom Loconis, general partner and head of venture at Lock Tower Capital. Tom, I sniped you on the LinkedIn. I saw that you had updated it. And then when we were in San Francisco, I kind of beelined for you and kind of asked you what was going on, and you told me the news. See, this is why I tell people, you know, keep things under wraps on LinkedIn, because there's always someone like me lurking in the shadows. Yeah, well, appreciate you lurking and appreciate you having me on. I think the reason we updated that is, you know, we're ready to take some of what we've been doing on the venture side public in the next couple of days. So excited to record this with you today. And yeah, happy to dive into that and any other topics on your mind throughout this conversation. Absolutely. So let's maybe begin with the origin story. Block Tower is one of the more notable firms in the space. You know, I don't know if you know this, but really rewinding the clock and entering the archives of history, they were one of the larger seed investors in the block before we ultimately bought back the company from our investors. I've had a long history with Ari and one Mike Bocella, and they used to have a venture arm, which kind of, I don't know the exact mechanics of what happened after their last head left, but that was quite a while ago. And it seems now we've launched a new venture fund and you are leading the charge in that respect. Yeah, that's correct. So, I mean, you know the genesis of the firm. We've been around for a while as one of the more OG crypto native asset management brands. Historically, most of our strategies have been run out of our flagship fund, which is a long bias hedge fund. And mm -hmm. as many hedge funds do, has dabbled quite significantly in venture over the years. So over the past couple of years, we've backed some 40 to 45 crypto native projects across both companies and networks. But most of that have been investments we've been running out of our flagship fund. And so the nature of writing sort of these illiquid venture investments in an open-ended liquid fund means that most of the time you are writing sort of smaller checks, primarily to token opportunities, because liquidity on a medium-term time frame still matters, as opposed to venture, which takes a much longer view. And so, you know, through the evolution of the firm, which has actually now evolved into four strategies, uh, you might be familiar with our acquisition of a fund called Gamma Point, which is now sort of a block tower market neutral fund that does some stuff on sort of the traditional market neutral side, your basis trading arbitrage, those types of opportunities, but also on sort of the crypto native side, whether that be liquidity providing and or crypto native lending. We're also running some credit strategies as we've made public yeah. in Packy's non-boring newsletter and sort of with the work that we're doing with Maker and Centrifuge. 
And now our fourth sort of formal strategy is the venture side. And so for that specifically, I joined the firm back in December to help sort of launch what is our new strategy and what's being expressed through a new $150 million fund. And your background, you were an investor before you were at Consensus. And I think, okay, let me see if I can recall this correctly using tapping into my deep <laughs> history of LinkedIn stalking. You were at Barclays, I yes. want to say, way back 2014 and 2015. Yeah. So like many in the space who are not sort of on the developer side of the fence, I started my career in investment banking, uh, initially on the M&A side of things, focused on the TMT sectors before pivoting into equity research, focused on payments and later European banks. Ironically, that's kind of where I caught the crypto bug. To my great surprise, in 2014, some of our institutional clients who were covering fintech stocks, which basically meant payment stocks back then, mm -hmm. started asking us, and this is an actual direct quote, what the hell is this Bitcoin <laughs> thing? And as effectively the most junior person on the team back then got staffed with figuring it out and writing some kind of a report. Fast forward a couple of years, couldn't quite shake the bug, uh, made a move from the UK. I'm French and sort of was living in London and working in London at the time uh, back to the US. And that's sort of when I joined Consensus, uh, summer 2017, before the ICO basically bull run, sort of that first retail-facing mainstream-ish hype cycle. Uh, spent two years at Consensus working on a number of corporate strategy initiatives, as well as leading business development for what has now become Consensus Codify, and eventually made a move into the venture world. And in the venture world specifically, sort of personally wanted to round out the crypto native side of venture that I'd had a chance to see at Consensus, where I notably helped source an investment or two on the Consensus Venture side of thing, which was at the time our balance sheet investment arm, mm -hmm. with sort of some of the stuff I'd seen during my MBA at Columbia, notably, you know, why venture funds of Silicon Valley do things the way they do, right? Why are venture funds looking for 10 to 15% ownership? Why do they prefer to lead deals and take board seats, as opposed to some of what we saw in crypto early days, which was very much like, opportunistic investing and, and sort of being flexible on terms and structures. And so joined a firm called White Star Capital, who's a global generous VC fund focused on sort of seed to B now, headquartered out of four co-HQs effectively, Paris, London, Montreal, and New York. And where White Star was sort of in the process of launching its traditional Fund 3, a $350 million vehicle that focused on sort of traditional tech opportunities from consumer to healthcare through fintech, my partner and I raised a $50 million crypto-focused fund under the umbrella of White Star. So did that for about three years, deployed Fund 1 across companies like Ledin, Paraswap, Superfluid, Alifea, Rally, and others, largely leading in co-leading rounds. Had a great time, but was sort of itching to go back to some of the crypto-native side, which is when I met Matt and Ari, and we sort of saw the opportunity to team up together. Got it. And so what do you think is going to be the underpinning thesis with which you'll approach the market? Yeah, for sure. So I'd say we're in a unique position. And this is sort of my thesis on venture. And I think Block Tower's thesis on venture and that we're not just a venture fund, we're kind of a strategic, right? When folks say strategic, they typically think of like Coinbase's investment arm or Gemini's investment arm. But really, I think that category is a little wider and, and Block Tower is strategic in that we have multiple funds and strategies that can not just be an investor, but a user of your platform, right? So specifically, what I mean there is like, if you're a DeFi protocol at seed stage, one of the first things you're calling your investors to solve for following your seed round is how do you bootstrap liquidity on your platform, right? Who are going to be those early liquidity providers, either demand side or supply side? And the benefit within Block Towers, for example, our market neutral fund, that's a big part of their mandate. That's a big part of how they generate yields, right? So there, there are obvious synergies where we can sort of pipe that in. And as a function also of those four different strategies and vehicles, we have a team of close to 30 investment professionals, which are each subject expert matters in different areas of crypto. And so the 
Block Tower VC fund that we're that we've launched is very much a crypto generalist, but we have deep theses in a number of sort of verticals. So I say the macro level thesis is that, I mean, this sounds like a catchphrase in crypto, but we're still early. Nine to 10% of people in the world have maybe dabbled with crypto. 90% of those have done so through a custodial interface. They've never interacted with a dApp or with a wallet. And so what that means- You're making me feel better, Tom, because (laughs) I saw the other day that Coinbase has 100 million users and it made me think, or get worried that maybe we're not so early, but you've mollified. I mean, we're no longer, you know, we've been saying we're early forever, but if you put it into perspective through the mainstream adoption, I think we're still early. And what I'm willing to take sort of a big thesis on is that early stage and seed stage and early series A venture is probably where we'll see the most upside, because I think the big winners of the coming decade and 15 years are probably not around yet or early stage enough that a fund our size, our stage can get exposure to them. So that's sort of at the macro level where we are in crypto. I think you were going to riff off that, so I'll take a pause. No, I was going to sort of yield back your time because I don't think you finished your train of thought. Yeah, happy to just close that off. So that's the macro piece. The second piece is that I think venture is changing and it's changing in crypto. And so how we approach those sort of sub-investment theses that I can get into in a second is sort of different and core to how we invest. So in many respects, my lessons from early consensus days and early crypto are that flexibility matters, being able to write small checks, being able to sort of go into token-only deals that don't have the protection of equity. All of that stuff is how you're going to create and capture upside in this space. But at the same time, some of the lessons of very traditional venture, right? Why folks have target ownership percentages and things like that. There's a lot of merit to that, both in terms of how venture math and portfolio math works, but also in terms of how you make sure that you can operationally be present and active with your companies, how you can have some visibility on outcomes and be able to drive them. And so how we're approaching the fund is we want to work for 90% of our fund. We want to work with a very core portfolio of 20, 25 companies and networks. And we want to be active in governance. If it's a token, we ideally want to be a board or a board observer if it's a, a company. But we're targeting percentage ownerships that work for us, but that also work for them, that work for the ways that people design cap tables, networks, ownership in Web3. So whereas like a lot of traditional Silicon Valley funds would target 15% of the cap table, we're pretty flexible. We target seven to 10, and sometimes we can flex down for good reason. On the token side, we target something like two to five. We do that with sort of 90% of the fund, but we are carving out 10% of the fund to do the funkier, more out there opportunities that might not be captured by a more structured investment vehicle that comes from a more traditional background, right? It's important to be able to partner up and invest in investment DAOs and incubators. You might feel that buying a basket of crypto punks is as underwritable as a super rare and open sea. And, and you know, you should be able to capture those opportunities if you're spending 100% of your time in this space. So macro thesis number two is sort of like the way venture funds invest is changing, but it retains some learnings of Web2. And then getting into specific verticals, you know, we're pretty interested in sort of, I mean, still interoperability. I think it's no longer contentious points to say we're in a multi-chain world and headed there. And that probability that demand for block space might outpace supply and therefore multiple L1s, although right now you could argue it's kind of the opposite, whether it's next gen L1s like Aptos and what's happening in the move ecosystem, whether it's interoperability or other solutions, you know, that's something we're looking for. We're spending a lot of time in the intersection of sort of digital privacy and censorship resistance. I think that's a big reason why a number of people got into this space. That could be, you know, companies building on top of IPFS like Privy. That could be much more sort of, quote unquote, anarchist tech type products, which are sometimes tough for funds to back. Um, as you've probably seen, we have a huge thesis on credit and its intersection with DeFi. There, we've actually backed companies and networks like Centrifuge and Maple, with whom we're also working through our other vehicles. We're now sort of looking to other pieces of the ecosystem, right? Credit scoring, credit default protection, things like that. 
spending a bunch of time at the intersections of new payments primitives that enable new business model types. So at White Star, we were investors in Superfluid. That's obviously a project that comes to mind in that vertical. Currently also doing uh, quite the deep dive on all things sort of mobile infrastructure and how that might usher in a new era of crypto consumer or social apps, right? I think for the first time ever, I'm using Farcaster and Be Real. It's the first time I can say that I'm daily opening up to new social media apps. So maybe there's something there. Maybe there's an opportunity. We want to meet the folks who are thinking about it, who are working on it. And sort of more of the app layer, spending a bunch of time on themes like co-creation. And that kind of ranges across right media, games, but also research, science, things like that. So those are some of sort of our macro and micro theses and the way we can achieve sort of a more generalist coverage of crypto, which is now a tech that touches almost everything from, you know, this new asset class through to DeSci is because beyond our core venture team, which is a group of four people, we also have a broader blocked hour umbrella and sort of uh, workforce to lean on. So whether it's sourcing deals, diligencing deals or adding value to the companies and networks we end up backing, we've got a pretty big collective sort of pushing forward. Is this all at the pre-seed, seed? A level or can you go up the chain of uh, rounds? Yeah, so, so that's a great question. And it's a little meta. So currently, as you could probably back out from the fun side. There are no rounds, you, man. <laughs> yeah, round names don't matter anymore. But largely speaking, you know, we write 500K to $6 million first checks with sort of one for one reserves or two for one reserves. We prefer to play at seed, but we'll do as early as pre-seed and as late as sort of series A. Um if I had to guess, you know, our portfolio will definitely skew seed, but we'll have a little bit of the earlier and later. As pertains to growth, it's an interesting question, right? Like you have a lot of funds that have become these mega funds, both in crypto and outside of crypto. And that model, I think, works very well for, for them, but it's not the model that we're looking to roll out. I think as we think about growth, first of all, crypto dedicated growth today seems difficult. There's not that many sort of growth companies, right? If you use, I don't want to say you end up becoming an index fund, but you sort of end up having less of your pick uh, amongst options and having to do most of the credible ones if you're deploying on, say, a two or three year investment period. Sure. And that's not uh, a bad strategy. Uh, to, it's to, early to, enough that that might yield. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say to a degree, right? There's been this reset where there were companies that were valued at much, much higher yeah. valuations if we were to... So, yeah. So yeah. I'll, I'll get to that in a second, right? Because as secondaries, the advantages of potentially being an RA, which we yeah. are, how that plays into that, how you think about valuation discipline, those are all theses. But to your direct point about growth... What I was driving at is like when and if we do growth. So currently we do growth through SPVs if and when we do it. Okay. Um, and, and that's because we didn't feel that we had the mandate or sort of that it, it was the right time to launch a crypto dedicated growth fund. I think when we're hopefully fortunate enough to reach a fund two or a fund three, we will probably want to raise an opportunity fund or a growth fund alongside that to be able to meaningfully partner with what will be a bigger, first of all, continue backing our core companies from the seed stage onwards to much later beyond the reserves we have in the seed fund but also to be able to sort of explore and back teams in a blossoming crypto growth network. To your direct point about sort of valuations resetting, I mean, one thing that's core and linked to our fund size and why our fund in this is also the size is I think we've been fairly disciplined, if not quite disciplined on that front, same in terms of deployment. Um, you know, we got this fund up and running back in December. We are currently on pace to deploy in something like three years, whereas you've seen funds go as fast as a couple months in the space. And that's because we found the market to be overheated. So we're waiting it's for that crazy. reset. And I don't know that we're at that reset just yet. But we did recently do an interesting secondaries opportunity that was at a sort of a discount to the prior round, which we felt was actually valued correctly. But sellers have to sell, right? So yeah, this market will present those opportunities. And this fund is certainly able to capture them or block tower through other vehicles and endeavors is sort of able to capture them. 
Get ready for Season 3 of the Tron Grand Hackathon 2022. There are a total of $1.2 million in prizes up for grabs in Web3, DeFi, GameFi, NFTs, and the newly added Academy and Ecosystem tracks. So what are you waiting for? Join Tron for an opportunity to showcase your work, win funding for your project, and network with other builders in the community. Tron Grand Hackathon, presented by TronDAO. To learn more, visit trondow.org. It's a fair point. So the reset has not completely reset. That's scary. Don't say that, Tom. Don't say that <laughs> loudly where they can hear you. No, totally fair. It's pretty interesting the degree to which certain darlings have fallen from grace. Certainly for some is an opportunity. For others, it's obviously very unfortunate. When you think about sort of those seed level opportunities specifically, though, there's many different categories that seem hot. Gaming, mm -hmm. metaverse, Web3 consumer. Mm -hmm. Which one of those are top of mind for you and which ones are maybe overrated? Yeah, I don't think any of them are overrated sort of an absolute as a line item. Those are all categories in which we're spending time. I think some of them got overheated and a lot of like, let's face it, whether you were on the fun side or the startup side, 2020 and 2021 was the easiest time to raise money. And so a lot of stuff that objectively wouldn't have gotten funded outside of this time of irrational exuberance did, right? And we don't know sort of who's going to make it and graduate into those shoes that were sort of too nice to get in the first place and who's not. I thought we were all going to make it, Tom. Lied <laughs> I do us. have a sweater that says wag me, but I changed for you today because I thought that was too mimetic. <laughs> 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 but no, like, listen, we've done some stuff in the metaverse space, but we've taken the bet that it's not ready for prime time. So we're more of the tooling layer. And that's something called Lighthouse, which is more of a metaverse search and mobility engine that we backed with Excel and Animoca. We are spending some time in Web3 social, Web3 consumer, but we have yet to press go on a lot of these things because mm -hmm. most of what we see is super cool and I would use it, but I'm not convinced that they can get the metrics they need in 12 or 24 months yet because the market's still not that large in terms of you know, it's it's hard for someone like my brother. There's only so many. There's only so many times. There's only. Yeah, I mean, there's only so many times and Franks who have a MetaMask and who want to play around with this stuff while there's still UX friction, right? If you think about, like, no one cares about how their credit card works, and yet there are five companies minimum in the middle of a transaction. And no one knows. That's because they don't have to ask. For as long as someone asks you what's an NFT, I don't think you can onboard an army, right? Uh, for as long as someone wants to know how a blockchain works, like, no one cares how the internet works. Right? It's a bunch of cables under the sea and satellites in space, but no one cares to know. Um, so I think we're not there yet. So like, yeah, we're, we're looking at all those themes. I'd say the highest conviction themes right now is definitely probably credit, which I've mentioned earlier. That's been a big theme for myself, for Block Tower for a while. At this point, we're doing a lot of the intersection of that initiative, whether that's- Are you talking about credit deals? Like, are you talking about companies that are in the credit space that you want to invest in? So, yeah, I'm talking about replatforming traditional credit, right? Platforms like Maple on sort of the crypto yeah. native side or Centrifuge on the real world asset side that are taking sort of these antiquated processes and trying to digitize them. And today, okay. sort of now you're now you're, speak, you're speaking my language. Yeah. This is lingo. something that I've been <laughs> looking at this week because I got a really interesting tip. Hopefully, by the time this podcast comes out, the story will be live. But there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in the crypto credit market. We obviously got out of a massive credit crisis, I think is the best way to put it, over the past uh, a few months ago with the meltdown of Three Arrows Capital. Mm -hmm. And you saw a lot of lenders pull back. You saw some 
effectively retreat completely. You've seen mass layoffs, an exodus of talent, and the age of under-collateralization, as they say, yeah. is now over. But who has come up to the top? Let me get back to that story. So we'll be reporting at some point that Coinbase is making a big multi-million, tens of million dollar push to set up their own crypto lending operation, institutional. Maple, I've been speaking with many different venture capitalist firms who tell me that most of the leverage or most of the lending activity they're doing is increasingly taking place on DeFi rails as opposed to through these centralized lenders who, I mean, it's crazy, Tom, and I, I'm super keen to get your take on this. You could probably rattle off for 20 minutes, which we will allow you to do. <laughs> they tell me that some of these lending firms, their reps, they just stop calling them. They stop talking to them. They have no idea who's at the firm, who's there. It's just complete chaos, yet DeFi, it works. It's transparent. And you also have tools that can to a degree, anonymize the size, whilst obviously still having that level of transparency. So I kind of, you know, rambled on a bit to sort of outline some of the things I've been looking at. Mm -hmm. I haven't written the story yet, so I'm still going through the process of reporting this out. How does that line up with what you're seeing? Yeah, so that lines up pretty squarely with some of what we're seeing. So I think there's a lot to unpack in there. I mean, I think one, what we saw in the crypto native credit market, right, like the three error situation and the contagion that ensued and the Celsius situation and others is what some investors sort of refuse to see in a time of irrational exuberance once again, uh, because, you know, the yields they were getting were too good to be true. And these firms that were venture backed were growing really quickly, despite some orangish flags. And so people sort of overlooked it. But the reality is, even if they didn't want to overlook it, it was really tough to go and check. Like most of those firms are a black box. Centralized lending is a black box. And to your point, yeah. unsecured uh, centralized lending in an industry where you have a ton of rehypothecation and contingent risk, you know, you're compounding risk on risk on risk. So if you look at sort of what we're interested in in credit and how that solves for that, it's kind of twofold. One, there's everything we've just been talking about. And that's the maples, yeah. the clear pools, the X margins of the world. If you went to the tooling layer and outside of the credit protocol layer, the companies that are trying to address replatforming private credit and have the initial AUM and sort of activity be dog fed by the industry that A, is most likely to, to adopt it the most and B, probably needs it the most following what we've just been talking about. Yeah. We're also extremely excited in what's happening sort of in on the centrifuge and Goldfinch and GIA, which is an interesting project as well, uh, which is sort of taking non-crypto exposure assets and piping them on crypto rails. And so we're interested in both. I think both of them are necessary and are going to advance in tandem side by side. We've spoken a lot about the value prop of the former, right? Replatforming the Genesis 3 Arrows stuff, the stuff that we do through our Gamma Point Fund, which you've seen in the press with working with Clearpool, working with Maple, uh, with counterparties like Jane Street. We're also super interested in sort of how DeFi grows with an interplay between permissionless and permission collateral and how that permission collateral might come from real world assets and how for those real world assets, they're also on ramping onto a more efficient process, uh, which can unlock a ton of new possibilities, business models and sort of fee compression in the future. So it's still early days. I think it's a more boring sector, right? Like unsecured real world asset lending compared to sort of a DeFi summer hype and then NFT hype. 
But in a bear market, that's where some of the stuff makes the most progress, right? And if you look at some of the existential risks that some DeFi protocols are facing and how they might scale, I do think the interplay between sort of the real world credit stuff, both crypto native and not, is going to be a really important theme. And so across the firm, whether that's our flagship fund taking positions in the liquid market on some of these assets, whether that's the venture fund backing folks like Centrifuge and Maple and looking now for sort of more opportunities elsewhere in the crypto credit stuff beyond those protocols, right? I mentioned X margin, I talked about credit scoring, stuff like that. We're also working with some of these protocols as liquidity providers and as lenders through our market neutral and credit strategies. So there's a lot to unpack here. We can maybe explain why what happened happened in your view. Do you have a view on that that maybe is different from the sort of, you know, the boilerplate, everybody got ahead of their skis, everybody was thirsty for those juicy yields. These were smart people, right? Like they weren't yeah. idiots, but this is history. This is human nature to a degree. Mm -hmm. What's the old expression? The thing that kills most men is leverage, liquor, and, and love. <laughs> yeah. Any um, nuance or minutia to a opinion and, and you can maybe counter it or dive deeper. All of these firms were venture backed, which, which mm -hmm. is different from the 2008 crisis where, yeah. you know, these are firms that obviously there were weird incentive models internally within the firm. There was a weird element in crypto where the BlockFi's, the Genesis's to a degree, they all had the benefit of being able to raise outside capital mm -hmm. at very favorable valuations. Mm -hmm. The more money you have, the less disciplined you are. And so yeah, you and the more take top line you have to risk. chase to justify that in the next one, because your burns increase to grow into that. Yeah, of course. Exactly. Yeah. So like, I can definitely speak to that theme. I mean, at White Star, my prior fund, sort of one of the biggest investments we've made and one of the companies that's been performing very well has been Ledin, right? Which for a long time in that centralized retail facing lending space was sort of the smaller of, you know, BlockFi, Celsius, and even perhaps Nexo. But in many ways, if you look now, they're one of the only, if not the only, CFI lender that hasn't taken a hit throughout all this. And so one of the things we saw at the time when we first underwrote the investment was sort of just going back to like unit economics and best-in-class attempts at compliance, right? Also that regulatory perspective, even if it came at the detriment of growing as fast as the others. But yeah, there's a, there's a lot to unpack in there, right? Who you lend to, at what rates, how much your venture investors are pushing you to hit the top line, what orange or red flags they might have overlooked because the climate was really hot and you just assumed that someone else would mark up your book six to 12 months later and whatever problem there was was going to get fixed. Like it's a confluence of all those things. And you hit the nail on the head. It's just human nature. No one in particular is to blame. Like we were in the biggest bubble of potentially human history or at least modern history. And we were at the peak of it when all of this unfolded. And so everyone feels comfortable taking that incremental 10, 20, 30% risk. And it seems like not too much. And then the music stops. And because of the rehypothecation, because of the contagion that, that sort of spread, it only took one domino to send everything tumbling, right? Um, one domino. So I don't have too much to add, but I would say like, if you were, this is the hardest thing of the venture job is like, you have to look five to 10 years out, not one to two years out. Like if you look at venture returns, you could be lagging all your peers for three years and then be one of the few that was right, right? It's just tough. It's really tough. And same goes for entrepreneurs, right? Like the pressure for them to hit bigger and bigger numbers when they were offered very favorable valuations because their rounds were very competitive. It's a lot to shoulder. And frankly, when your company grows that quickly, you might not be aware of everything that's going on anymore. Very well said, Tom. I appreciate that. So we looked back. Let's look forward now. 
And I appreciate you kind of going along for the ride of like really diving deep into this one specific vertical, even though you guys are working on so many different things. Um, so you could potentially have new players come on board. You could have, you know, something like a Coinbase. Falcon X obviously is being talked about a lot as a, a person or rather entity that can step in and fill the proverbial void there in the lending market. But again, to what I said earlier, DeFi seems to be entering the forefront. I think when you look across the long list of crypto native funds, which are now very large at this point, yeah. many of them are comfortable instead of going to a centralized desk, going to a maple. Is this a shift or has this been sort of a slow, you know, growth story? I'd say it's a hybrid of the two, right? They're effectively doing the same thing, but just at a different venue, right? They're like, if you take what our market neutral fund did on Maple, is doing on Clearpool, things like that, we're still lending to the same counterparties we would have been lending to otherwise. But we have the benefit of having a slightly better process once we've gone through it at least once, because then you sort of templatize it and digitize it to simplify things. You get a little bit better economics because you're effectively going long those platforms as a liquidity provider by earning some of the liquidity mining rewards. So it's the same activity on a better database, more transparent database that makes us more comfortable and with slightly better economics, hopefully, through sort of earning the network equity of these protocols, because that's how a lot of them work. And what it does is also hopefully over time helps weed out the sort of bad actors, right? Those that are less willing to be transparent. You can't lie on chain, right? We were doing DD on a company recently and we sent an entrepreneur DDQ and community laugh because he's like, I know you might not think these metrics are good versus company X, which will remain unnamed, but I'm telling you the truth. All my claims are on chain and I do not know that that's true of them. <laughs> and, you know, that's true of crypto lending as well, right? So it is a shift, but it's also not a meaningful deviation because it's largely the same actors. And hopefully over time, if you look at platforms like Maple, it also allows guys like you and I and retail at large to participate, right? The form that that takes, I think, is still being shaped. But these are markets that were also previously only accessible to institutions at large, right? Like I was on a call with another entrepreneur in the space this morning who was telling me that he and his co-founder were trying to buy um, long-dated Italian treasuries. And for a retail guy, it's almost impossible, even if you're writing like hundreds of thousands of dollars of a check or potentially millions of dollars, right? You're still sort of platform-wise taken out of these markets. No one's done what Robinhood has done to spot equities for credit. And so the hope over time, potentially with some of these platforms that allow for the retail side of things like Maple, is that we'll be able to augment that business model and sort of give folks exposure if they so choose to want it. So it adds an element of transparency for institutions, the likes of which they've never had, but also provides a level of access that segment of the investor landscape has never had. Yeah. And that all happens slow, right? That second piece, like just double clicking on Maple quickly, because I wouldn't want there to be any sort of misunderstanding. They've got both permissioned and permissionless pools, right? They have pools where it's just institution to institution, and they have pools where the little retail DGEN and DeFi is allowed to participate. Yeah. And I think over time, at the very least, the fact that that second option exists is potentially game changing. So we were kind of, you know, talking about the juxtaposition between the benefits of decentralized credit for retail, the benefits for institutional players. But if we double click, focus in on the latter, there are still some weird thorny issues around, yep. you know, legality. When we think back to the period post Three Arrows Capital's meltdown, Terra Luna's meltdown, everyone on Twitter was sort of popping off about 
how it kind of proved the power of the smart contract and how, you know, mm -hmm. there is no compromising, no jeopardizing that transaction sort of not executing properly, whereas all of the CFI lenders sort of blew up. But there were also questions about the degree to which, even though it worked, was it legal necessarily? Like, can certain entities be hit before others in a contractual sort of situation? Whereas if you were on the other side of Celsius as a smart contract, you got paid. But if you were on the other side of mm -hmm. Celsius as a human, you did not. And is that sort of mm -hmm. lawful or legal or whatever? That is one question. But there's also like a technical question that maybe might keep institutions out. How do you think about some of those maybe thorny issues or, or downsides? Yeah, I think there is a ton to unpack in there and, and we could do a whole other hour on this. And at some point, actually, I think you'd enjoy a conversation with our credit guys, uh, maybe for another time. But I mean, first things first, like, yeah, you're absolutely right. There is a benefit to lending through a smart contract. And then in the pecking order, if you're lending with something that has claims on collateral with code, you're going to get paid. Very eloquently put. And that's not to say that smart contracts pay everyone the same. Like there could be tranches and sort of a junior and a senior tranche loan, but that could still be through sort of crypto rails and tokens, right? So you might still have a liquidation waterfall in preferential terms. At the end of the day, whether that's legal or not is for the legal minds to opine on. I will not pseudo lawyer in this conversation. <laughs> but even when something's legal and signed on paper, if it goes to sort of a judge and the creditors, it might be that your venture investors in the equity stack and your secret lenders and sort of on your balance sheet technically have a claim to your assets, but a judge decides to potentially pay out retail deposit holders first, right? So I'd say like, whether it's run by code or whether it's legal, whether it's not, there's a big spectrum of outcomes here. You certainly protect yourself the more claims by code and preferential terms you have first. If I look at the advantages for institutions, it goes beyond that, right? Like if you go to sort of like traditional credit and then sort of a securitization, you've got like 14 steps from the borrower paying through to the last step, right? That's absolutely huge. And if you put this on platforms like Centrifuge, you sort of trim those, four, not to say there's no friction, there's still a bunch of friction. And to your point, there is a regulatory landscape and like whether retail DeFi can be a liquidity source and there's a number of questions in there, but you're trimming what is a 14 step process to something like a four to five step process and giving folks more transparency, more guarantees as where they sit in liquidation waterfall. And, and hopefully over time, frankly, you're aggregating a lot better data and sort of building something that will be long-term, more sustainable, more differentiated and, and unlock more value. I mean that in two ways. I mean, in trimming costs from the existing system. And I mean that in growing the overall pie, right? That I think is pretty powerful and what excites us. All in all, it's like, the increasing efficiencies that you get through those processes and sort of the lower costs that that might confer you to. It's the further transparency and, and regulatory compliance, right? When you encode compliance at sort of the programmatic level, obviously these have to be compliant protocols and protocols that interface with the regulatory world. But if this is what we're talking about, which is what I'm talking about, then, then it does have that benefit. You're improving data security analysis, privacy, and hopefully you're also potentially unlocking new business models, new liquidity sources, right? So all in all, I think like we as an industry, both in light of what's happened 
and in terms of dog fooding our own industry and in terms of skating where the puck is going to use a non-soccer analogy for once since i'm european you know we sort of need to, to start poking around there and that's why we're doing so much work in that theme across all our strategies and this isn't something that's like you know pie in the sky might happen could happen it's actually happening i'm surprised at the degree to which mm-hmm some of the largest institutional players in crypto have moved into the decentralized credit market. You know, I almost wrote this story two years ago and I would have looked so Mm -hmm. prescient and intelligent, but alas, I look like a fool. I was speaking with one of the most senior executives at a crypto exchange and he said to me, Frank, you know, the hardest position I can hire for, the most difficult position I can hire for is a crypto credit expert. And I thought, all right, yeah, maybe that's a story. That's like kind of interesting. Wow, was that a story? He goes, there's probably 20 in the entire world. Yeah. And in hindsight, that's pretty scary. And of course, you know, there's the trite sort of adage of we're, we're trusting code, not people. But to a degree, it's true. Yeah. All right, zooming out at a higher level. I want to tap your brain on more stuff. I don't want to just pigeonhole you into crypto credit. What other crypto infrastructure plays are you looking at? Yes, I mean, we've already, I think I gave you a quick sneak peek of some of the specific themes we're thinking about. And and we've sort of done some infrastructure stuff across that, right? I mentioned Lighthouse, which is sort of metaverse-specific infrastructure, allowing Frank and Thomas to match each other's wallets as friends so that in one click, I know which metaverse parcel you're in and I can Mm -hmm. be there allowing Thomas to Lighthouse where the next Travis Scott concert is and in one click get, you know, transported to that. So that's sort of like infrastructure within one theme. We've also gone as far as backing infrastructure sort of at the L1 level. So as was announced in sort of their initial seed round, we're investors in Aptos, for example, um, and seeing a bunch of stuff in the infrastructure realm on that chain, as well as on SUI by Mistin Labs. We're currently looking at some really exciting payments level infrastructure, right? I think for a long time, people expected crypto and L1 tokens to be that payment primitive. I think we have protocols that will be built on top of these things, versions of sort of a decentralized Visa MasterCards, things like Superfluid or Sablier that bring payments to real streaming time as opposed to sort of get paid after the fact or pay for a whole unit that you might not use entirely. Um, So that's some of the stuff we've been spending a decent bit of time on as pertains to infrastructure. You know, as a firm, we're also obviously looking to like the future of proof of stake protocols and how you can sort of help like Vitalik's layer three essay, right? What's that going to look like? Sort of the consensus layer of ETH2 and potentially other proof-of-stake networks. So those are some of the more infra-focused themes that we spend time on and are continuing to spend time on at the moment. Understood. So I've talked to a bunch of VCs about the move away from tokens, the shunning of tokens. We're in a tokenless regime, so to speak. Are you shunning tokens? We are definitely not shunning tokens. Uh, I very much align with your former block colleague and founder, uh, Mike Dudas, who had a good take on Twitter the other day about this. I think you can't be in this space and ignore tokens. The way we underwrite most deals at seed stage is, I tell this entrepreneurs all the time, is we are investing in teams and projects, and we're investing in them agnostic of whether five, 10 years from now, they will be a company, a network, or a hybrid of the two. And so a company's value is represented in equity, a network's value is represented in tokens, 
I think tokens historically have been more memes and then governance, but over time, I hope and I believe that tokens will evolve into true network equity, right? Sort of a network level security, not a security that is linked to a centralized company that the SEC regulates, but to a network that is operated in more of a decentralized fashion. And so, no, we're definitely not shunning tokens. What we are doing, however, and what I'm glad to be seeing at large is we're not asking, you know, that sort of pressure question, when token, please launch it. I want to cash out. I want to, you know, like we write rounds that basically are equity with a right to future tokens, if ever issued. That way the teams have some clarity, they have some flexibility as to making sure that incentives are aligned no matter what and sort of where they're to back them as they build one or the other or transition from one to the other. Uh, we typically underwrite the token piece on warrants. That's sort of what's become industry best standards. We try to work in ways that sort of mitigate any potential tax impact, things like that. But we're completely instrument agnostic at Block Tower. You know, we are an RA. We're able to go above the 20% exemption rule. We're able to purchase tokens in the secondary market, which, which is also something we've done, right? Like venture is changing in every respect. I talked a little bit about how funds in this space need to be thinking about ownership differently, might need to be power users of the products they're backing either individually through sort of their team and their individual theses, or as a firm like we do at Block Tower in the DeFi and infrastructure realm. The other thing that's changing is we now have very early stage projects who have publicly traded instruments. And so for a VC, right, if you look at sort of where like crypto private rounds are still being done, there's a lot of capital pent up, valuations have come down, but they've come down nowhere near to what we're seeing in traditional gaming and fintech where like, it's perfectly normal and reasonable to raise two on 10. Yeah. I mean, there are very few two on 10s in crypto right now. Any sort of credible entrepreneur is raising at least a 20, and they feel like that's a downscale from six months ago. But the reality is that's a 2x from what you're seeing in broader fintech. Whereas if you look at public tokens, right, some projects look like deep value right now or will if things continue to trade sideways, right? And so as venture investors, I think you need to be able to capture both, both in terms of the companies you're backing, which might become networks, but also because you might be finding on your two, three year investment period, more opportunities to back existing projects that have been launched, that have some early traction, that have a public token where you can acquire 200K a day or a 500K flip or a million from a market maker than you might in the private markets. And so this is sort of a new world and we are definitely not shunning tokens. I think that would be probably extremely antithetical to sort of the foundation of the firm on the liquid side. Right? Very well put. Very eloquent, sir. I'm glad I flagged you down at that Giants game. Appreciate you for joining the show. Once again, we've been joined today by our very patient guest, considering the slew of technical difficulties, Mr. Thomas Klunkanis, General Partner and Head of Venture at Block Tower. Sir, where can our listeners find your crypto punk on Twitter? It's not a crypto it's punk. Not, it's, a it's a pixel portrait. portrait. I thought you would have recognized me there. But I am T. Focanis on Twitter. And I'm sure a number of you follow a couple of existing Block Tower members of which Ari. And we're looking forward to sort of getting the news out there, partnering with some great teams. So thanks for having us and sort of digging into some of our PCs today. Congrats on being the first person from the firm on the show. I was trying to get Michael to talk about SPACs about two years ago, since he was the SPAC king back in the... <laughs> Early 2000s now, like in 2010. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I'm what not sure how he'll feel about that nickname, but I'll let you take the that SPAC up The SPAC king. <laughs> He's the king of many, many yeah. different arenas. Sir, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, look forward to connecting next. Cheers. Thank you so much. <laughs> cool. Talk to you guys soon. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.